0: Welcome, and let's first talk compliance. I'm Katherine Short, marketing manager for First Healthcare Compliance, a division of Panacea Healthcare Solutions. Thanks for tuning in. This show is brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high quality, complimentary educational resources. Please show your support by taking a moment to provide a review on Google, Facebook, or iTunes. And be sure to follow us on social media and subscribe to our YouTube channel. On today's episode, we are speaking with attorneys Sean McKenna, Lauren Nelson, and Vincent Aiello of Spencer Fain LLP on the topic of healthcare assets, how to preserve and protect. We will discuss the interplay between enforcement and liability proceedings with asset protection explore how government and private litigation matters can impact healthcare companies, clinicians, and executives, and provide tips and preventative strategies to preserve income and assets prior to such action to ensure business continuity and succession planning. So, Sean, Lauren, and Vincent, welcome so much. Thank you for being here today. It's a pleasure to have you on First Talk Compliance.
1: Uh, Thank you very much, Catherine.
0: Thank you, Sean. Can you briefly speak about what we will be discussing today?
1: I'm pleased to have two of my partners with me today to talk about kind of enforcement liability issues and then ultimately how to preserve and protect assets and healthcare for clinicians, companies, and executives. And so what we're going to talk about today is the enforcement component, then Lauren will discuss some of the liability professional liability concerns and related issues and then we're going to turn turn it over to Vince who's going to talk about the preservation and asset protection
0: so let's get started Sean can you describe some of the risks
1: some of the risks here uh, these are kind of the risks that we all see that are very common you've got the civil and criminal components but these are the types of cases really we're seeing especially these days there's a huge impact on ancillary services and the relationships with uh, providers, especially physicians, then plus the telehealth component. So the telehealth issue has been a really hot button issue for the OIG for HHS, as well as the Department of Justice over the last several years. Then you get into some genetic testing. And most recently, I think there's been an emphasis on COVID testing and how it was built and who it was provided to during the pandemic. So that's really what we're seeing on the civil and criminal side. So you've got just your general billing issues that are always out there. Uh, you've got the COVID, CARES Act type of liabilities. And, uh, and then you really have to worry about the False Claims Act, which we're not going to touch upon today, but that's a civil enforcement remedy that the government uses to collect dollars back to the federal fisc. And about 75 to 80 percent of all those dollars recovered relate to uh, federal health care dollars. And one of the biggest areas that we're also seeing is anti-kickback and claw for those of you uh, participating in Medicare and Medicaid uh, or TRICARE, for instance. So we've evolved over the years and now the anti-kickback statute has become a very prominent weapon in the Department of Justice's arsenal to try and pursue some of these alleged or perceived improper relationships. And then finally, we're also seeing just a ton of audits out there uh, especially on the private payer side, from the big commercial payers out there looking into some of these arrangements as well, they don't have the enforcement capacity. But as we'll talk about here on the criminal side, uh, common, you know, commercial insurance companies can make referrals to the FBI, who can be prosecute those cases with the Department of Justice uh, just for purely commercial claims.
0: Can you give me an example of what the DOJ would be looking into?
1: Historically, in the last year or so, the government likes to, the last 20, 30 years, every time there's a natural disaster or some sort of economic crises, they, Congress doles out you know, billions of dollars. And a lot of it goes kind of untagged in the effort to get the money out the door to assist the affected uh, individuals and organizations and communities. Well, COVID was no different. And so with the pandemic, there was billions of dollars being issued. And I think recent estimates are about 30% of those funds were used improperly. Uh, And again, it happened with Katrina, it happened with the economic meltdown in 08, it happened in other years as well. So anytime there's a huge outlay of federal funds, there's always some fraud related to it, and then there's inevitably a Department of Justice Task Force. Uh, it happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, on uh, procurement fraud as well. So about every 10 years, there seems to be something like this. So there's a dedication of prosecutors, as well as resources into combating those types of frauds. And one of the big things that we're talking about in healthcare as well for large organizations are the subsidization of patient copays, pays uh, Waiver and collection of copays. long has been an issue uh, for some of these very expensive medications uh, there have been charities or foundations set up to offset the cost of those in order to encourage patients to continue to ask their providers for those types of uh, pharmaceuticals. And these are just some recent cases out there that talk about uh, efforts on that, where they essentially the government alleged, and these are admissions of no admissions of liability, but the government simply alleged that there was a crossing the line and these were. Uh, beneficiary beneficiary inducements, but also potential AKS related to the clinicians. The opioid epidemic is something that remains uh, in the front page. Uh, Almost all jurisdictions, states, municipalities, uh, reservations, school districts, have all kind of staked out a claim that certain manufacturers of opioid products have inadvertently, or excuse me, deliberately caused the overprescription of their products. Uh, most prominent recently has been Purdue Pharmaceutical with OxyContin, but uh, other municipalities involving the prescriptions of hydrocodone. So of course, the Department of Justice set up a strike force task force to address these. And these used to be pill mill cases where there were just local clinics or pharmacies out there providing uh, these types of uh, controlled substances uh, with to the community for with little checks or balances, uh, the Department of Justice has taken a dim view of that. But most recently, they've added not only those kind of controlled substance violations, but also paired it with insurance fraud cases to make a very potent uh, allegation. And so, anyone in the pain management scrutiny not only is coming under uh, kind of rigorous review for that for the prescription patterns, but also their use of ancillary services and ownerships and toxicology and labs, et cetera. And so that remains a big issue. But as you can see, the strike force here is something that the Department of Justice thinks uh, was very helpful. And also, this does not even include the state remedies or the private causes of action that individuals and organizations and municipalities and state functions have against the pharmacies chains as well. I think every day there's always a new update So, I urge anybody in the pain management of the pharmaceutical area to continue to closely monitor those types of settlements and what conduct has been alleged by uh, law enforcement.
0: Lauren, can you speak to us about provider liability?
2: Uh, Sure. So, the areas for potential liability and damages that our audience really need to be aware of are the False Claims Act and the you know, penalties that can come with that, uh, AKS, the anti kickback statute, as well as STARK, um, the typical claims that come from torts, so your medical malpractice, um, your slip and falls, and things like that, as well as HIPAA and high tech, so your data breaches, and then contractual uh, problems uh, with vendors and things like that, and then employment claims. Now, the government has really ramped up their civil and criminal investigations over the last year or two. And they have new initiatives that are really focused on um, recovering, you know, money spent on these alleged fraudulent claims. Uh, In the last couple of months or year, they've really been focusing on telehealth um, claims submitted by labs, as well as pharmacies and they've started the investigations into the COVID funding and billing as well as your PBMs. And we expect that the government will continue to ramp up the investigations in all of these areas as well as other potential areas. In addition, the different licensing boards have also resumed their unannounced surveys and inspections of provider sites. For a while during COVID, sort of more towards the beginning of the pandemic, they had halted these inspections because of the pandemic, but they absolutely have been inspecting um, facilities. So you need to be mindful of that. And the different accreditation um, boards are really focused on emergency management, you know, how a facility is responding to a crisis, um, infection control, uh, the use of medical devices, as well as employee safety. You know, it's interesting that the government has ramped up these investigations at a time when patients are demanding more care. You know, there was a decrease in the number of patients that were seeking care towards the beginning of the pandemic, but now that we're coming out of it, patients are returning to their doctors and they've had an increase in chronic conditions Um, There have been delays in getting things like cancer um, diagnosed. And so you guys are having to deal with the additional patients while also being worried about these government investigations.
0: Lauren, so what do you need to do in order to protect yourself?
2: Well, the first thing is really to have a full understanding of what all of these different potential risks are. And so to do this, you need to do a comprehensive and, and very strategic assessment of all potential risks throughout your organization. And frequently people you know, talk about the um, enterprise risk management, and it really is a great approach because it looks at every different aspect, department of a healthcare system. And it's really important that not only do you do these risk assessments in each department, but you need to have the different groups communicate and work together so there's coordination and like a real appreciation for what those risks are.
0: Lauren, one component of that, take your highest risk factors and focus your energies on that. I know for a smaller organization or group, your risk factors aren't gonna be the same as for a larger institution or national company. So you've got to scale your efforts accordingly,
2: right? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And it's, you know, really it's about having an understanding of what those potential risks are. And honestly, if if you can coordinate, you know, the efforts of these assessments with the different departments, you know, you're in you will end up putting less strain and demand on the individual departments and that results in a better understanding of the potential risks. And it also gives you the capability of improving those potential problems that you can identify. You know, one big area, you know, as a, as a defense attorney, I deal with patient medical records frequently, and I always deal with risk management. What can be a little problematic is when there's a lack of coordination between you know, the IT department or the records department and risk management. So it's really important that everyone's on the same page and everyone has a good understanding you know, of what information is available and things like that.
0: Okay, so can we look at clinical risks?
2: So I think everyone knows that we are facing a pretty significant staff shortage and that healthcare has always had staff shortages, but during the pandemic, it really came to light. There was an increased use of travel nurses, and shifting you know, nurses from one department to another, which creates you know, the potential for problems when you know, your staff may not fully understand the policies or practices you know, of the ICU if normally they're a med surge nurse or something like that. This has created a, a pretty significant problem. In addition to the shortage, that drives up the cost for the healthcare system and it hurts the whole group as a a whole. Staff shortages also increase the risk of harm to patients. There's lack of continuity of care potentially, but it also has an impact on your employees um, just from, from a morale standpoint and their safety. So one thing that providers can do or entities can do to help decrease these clinical risks is really to foster a culture of reporting without consequences. You know, every, everyone, or a lot of groups say that they have this great culture, but when a, an employee goes and reports a physician for inappropriate behavior or uh, a concern about ignoring timeouts and things like that, the reality is frequently that that employee is reprimanded. Um, maybe, maybe not. Directly by HR, but it gets around. And that's that's not what you want to have. You want your providers to be able to, they recognize a problem, you want them to come alert you so that problem can be avoided or fixed. It'll help to decrease the patient harm. Also, you know, use your peer review to improve those the patient safety and clinical outcomes. Don't have peer review just simply be window dressing. Really understand what happened and try to make changes. And don't let peer review be only punitive. I mean, you, you want to improve patient safety and that's the whole purpose behind it. So really work on on that. Uh, one other thing it's worth noting, it can be very helpful to have your staff or your physicians inform you of what outside sources that they are doing um, or, or receiving any kind of compensation from or if they're acting as a, quote, expert, as in, you know, for example, if you have a surgeon who trains other surgeons using a specific medical device and the manufacturer of that medical device, you know, provides some compensation to that surgeon, you know, as an entity, you really need to know that as your malpractice defense attorney, I absolutely need to know that because if a lawsuit arises where something like that, um, you know, that device is at issue, it doesn't always look great. And it doesn't mean that there's something nefarious, but it's really good to know. So just, you know, ask your your employees or your physicians to keep you informed of that.
1: Yeah. And from a government pers- investigations perspective, Lauren, having you know, surgeons or physicians act as experts that could take a contrary or problematic view uh, in the short term for financial remuneration Mm -hmm. can be used as really great evidence of what the facility or the physician was doing and was incorrect later. Uh, So you definitely want to be mindful. I mean, you know, we're offered opportunities to be legal experts all the time, but we generally shy away from them because we do not want to be taking an inconsistent position that somehow I might have to stand before a tribunal or other fact finder, and articulate why my client is, you know, innocent.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance, brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance, as part of our commitment to provide high-quality, complementary educational resources. We help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. My guests today are attorneys Sean McKenna, Lauren Nelson, and Vince Aiello of Spencer Fain LLP on the topic of healthcare assets, how to preserve and protect. Please share your support by providing a review of First Healthcare Compliance on Google or Facebook. You can also follow us and subscribe on all forms of social media. Vince, can you discuss enforcement and potential liability, especially during the pandemic and onwards? What can you talk to us about what kind of individuals and executives and companies, clinicians can do to protect and preserve their assets?
3: Absolutely. Um, So before we get going into asset protection trusts um, and some asset protection strategies, there's a few caveats. One, um, asset protection, asset protection strategies work best when you're planning ahead. So if you're thinking that you're going to set up an asset protection trust um, at the last minute after a claim's been filed, uh, after an investigation has started, uh, that's generally uh, a huge red flag uh, in my practice when I see clients, whether they're business owners or CEOs, CFOs come in, they're involved in medical practice groups um, or other businesses associated with uh, hospitals and medical practice groups or doctors' offices can run the gamut. So plan ahead. That's that's one of the main caveats that I can give. So uh, you you if you're not setting these trusts up uh, far in advance, at least a minimum of two years before any potential claim, then there's a risk that uh, they may not work. And also, these types of trusts aren't a panacea to simply uh, skirt uh, liability and uh, somehow. Uh, Say that you can engage in nefarious conduct or or things that are criminal in nature. They don't function in that capacity. So, with those sort of basic caveats in mind, I can kind of walk through the process of, you know, setting up an asset protection trust and what it is and, and what's involved with that. So, asset protection trusts have been around uh, for quite some time. Uh, in their in their simplest way to think about them, they are a contract. Um, there is a trust agreement, and they are a creature of statute. They're almost always uh, an irrevocable trust. Um, they are set up under the laws of, of the states that are listed here on this slide. Um, you know, legislatures have expanded the, the uh, scope of protections in various states, offer various uh, uh, degrees of creditor uh, protection for the individuals that are setting up an asset protection trust. If, for example, you don't like uh, doing business in Nevada and you want to have an asset protection trust in Virginia or Tennessee, South Dakota, or one of these other states, you can certainly uh, set a trust up there in those jurisdictions. With the caveat being that each of those states have uh, different time periods that creditors are allowed to bring claims against that particular trust uh, and also against the individuals that may be trying to set up those trusts.
0: Vince, can you tell us more about what exactly is an asset protection trust?
3: An asset protection trust essentially, as I mentioned, is a contract document. It's going to allow you to preserve your assets, retain beneficial interests of those assets and protect the assets from creditors. It's highly effective if they're set up ahead of time for entrepreneurs setting up all sorts of businesses, medical practices, uh, medical service organizations, um, for business owners, for the individual employees that are functioning as directors or officers or CEOs, uh, for doctors. Uh, generally used for individuals with uh, higher net worth, you're not going to see an asset protection trust set up uh, in a scenario where you are trying to preserve a few hundred thousand dollars in assets. Usually these are going to be folks uh, who have a few million dollars at risk. And um, you're you're setting that up to mitigate uh, any potential risk of liability, seizure and forfeiture that may come from all the things that we uh, spent uh, uh, time on talking about a few minutes ago. We talked a little bit about the elements of an effective asset protection structure, but there's, there's a bit of redundancy because it's important uh, that folks that are interested in setting up an asset protection strategy realize what's involved.
0: In an irrevocable trust, can you control everything?
3: Oftentimes, clients will come to me. They've worked with another trust practitioner. Uh, they've worked with a defense litigation team. Um, they, they somehow think that they're protected and covered under an insurance policy and they come to find out that they may not be as protected as they had um, expected they would have been oftentimes folks will uh, come to me and they'll say i want to set up a asset protection trust and i want to control everything huge red flag you're you're going to have to be comfortable with moving your assets into an irrevocable asset protection trust to preserve those assets for your benefit, but you can't retain too much control over those assets. And this is sort of the um, where the nuances of state law and uh, trust drafting come into play. Um, and really, um, it goes to uh, how these documents aren't formulaic; they they need to be set up for the individual business owner, the professional doctor, or uh, person that is potentially subject to the to the liability of running uh, a medical organization, doctor's office and whatnot.
0: Vince, you mentioned potential red flags. What are some potential red flags?
3: Yeah, so, you know, there are look-back periods. The red flag that happens uh, is that the doctor or uh, business owner comes in and they say, "I, I think I'm under investigation, but I'm not sure. And then all of a sudden they'll say, uh, we need to take um, certain steps to protect my assets. I, I have never done that before. I have an LLC, but I'm concerned I may have some liability. If you race to set up an asset protection trust after the fact, um, both uh, a civil attorney and a criminal prosecutor can file motions to have the judge uh, look at the transfers into those trusts and set those transfers aside. Essentially unwinding the value and the benefit the trust offers. So, for example, in Nevada and several other states, the look back period is two years. So, if a client comes to me today and they want to start a new medical practice group and they're concerned about potential liability, perhaps they've invested a million dollars into the business, they don't want to lose the balance of their uh, investments and holdings, and they want to set up this trust. As long as they're doing that, two years before they incur any potential liability, then they're
2: fine.
0: So Lauren, any thoughts for the next year or two ahead?
2: Uh, Sure. So there are predictions that due to patients delaying receiving care um, over the last couple of years because of the pandemic, um, healthcare providers are anticipating an increased need for care Um, especially in the long-term care sector, as as well as care for chronic diseases, as well as behavioral health. And one thing that will be really interesting to watch over the rest of the year and next year is the further integration and really diversification of how that care is being provided. So through telehealth, um, the integration from wearable devices and things like that, which, you know, those issues raise cybersecurity questions and things like that. Um, you know, there's also a thought that there will be a greater um, level of investigation by the government and there will be, you know, greater scrutiny for FCA and AKS Stark claims. So things, you know, really sort of in that regard.
0: Vince, how about you? Any final thoughts?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think my final thought is plan. You know, plan now, plan for the future. And in my practice, uh, um, that's key. You know, if you're in business now and you haven't planned uh, and you've got a concern and you think you've got exposure, still plan now. It's not too late. Um, You know, whatever the uh, big scary liability is that that is out there, um, there are ways to deal with that. And uh, uh, it's very unfortunate when folks come to my office too late, and there's very little we can do after the fact.
1: So that that's my suggestion.
0: And Sean, what about you? Final thoughts?
1: I'd echo what Lauren said, just the enforcement risk, whether it's it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So take heed with what Vince and Lauren have discussed. Thank you so much for everybody. Thank you for the insights, Vince and Lauren, and thank you, Catherine, and First Healthcare Compliance. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you.
0: Yes, thank you so much. I wanted to thank you all for being here. And thanks to our audience for tuning in to First Talk Compliance. You can learn more about our show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at FirstHCC or hashtag First Talk Compliance. You can also email me at Short at firsthcc.com. I'm Catherine Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember compliance is the key to achieving peace of mind.